As we come to God's word this morning, we are going to look at a precious verse, a single verse, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And as you are turning in your Bibles or on your devices to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, may I remind us that the first readers of the book of Hebrews were converted Jews. They were Jews who found that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. They trusted him to be the Lord and Savior, even as we do these days. But that good ship converted Jew was on some tempestuous, uh, rocky seas. That little boat of converted Jews that were the first readers of the book of Hebrews were in a storm. And the waves of that storm were angry. They looked like doubt and doctrinal drift and departing from the basics of the faith and devaluing grace and demoting the Son of God to just being some kind of an angel. But the largest tsunami wave of opposition and danger for the Jews who came to faith in Christ that first read the book of Hebrews was an intensifying persecution. They already were being persecuted when the letter was written, but as uh, time unfolded, even more dangerous waves of persecution fell upon them. And so the Lord in his mercy and the Lord in his grace and the Lord in his love moved the human author of Hebrews along to write a tremendous epistle of encouragement And of course, it's timeless encouragement. It was encouragement to the first Jews who had become Christians who read the book, but it continues to be that comfort and encouragement to you and to me at this time of pandemic. Just think, by way of very quick review, the encouraging words we've already seen in the book of Hebrews from verse 1 of chapter 1 through to chapter 4, verse 13. Very quickly, the encouraging words that God's supreme revelation is in Christ that God's Son is superior to all the angels, that salvation is too important to neglect, that the incarnation, Christmas, is the biggest proof of God's love for humans, that the links between Christ's suffering and propitiation, that is satisfactory payment for sin, and our redemption and our sanctification and our glorification, these are all linked together. And Christ's faithfulness that he had to his mission, singular mission, to seek and to save those who are lost. And Christ was faithful to doing that one mission from his Father. Encouraging, more encouragement. Spiritual rest for a believer is based in Christ-based acceptance, not performance. Encouragement, the frequent thought of God's grace in Christ-based acceptance is how that we can actually enter into a spiritual rest despite the areas within and without of us that don't seem restful. Encouraging that the Bible is living and active and sharp. All encouragement, wave after wave of encouragement is given in this epistle to buttress against the wave and wave of opposition and persecution which the good ship converted Jew was facing on the high seas of life. And so when we talk about ships as a metaphor and angry seas, of course, every ship needs an anchor. And so I'm just wondering, in these days, these upside-down days, these 
never to have been imagined days. Who or what is your anchor? I want you to think about that, please. In these days, who or what is your anchor? And viewer, if you're not sure that Jesus is your anchor, the rock upon which your life is built, you need to trust him and only him to be your savior. You need to acknowledge that you've fallen short of God's law. You need to see that there's a paycheck for falling short, which is separation from God forever in a place the Bible calls hell. You need to understand that Jesus died not to show you how to die, but he died in your place as your substitute instead of you. And you need to believe that if you will trust him and only him, that he can give you the forgiveness of all of your sins and a home in heaven one day. That is my prayer for all of our viewers, that we would know that Jesus Christ is both our anchor and our rock upon which to build our lives, not just for time, but also for eternity. And so we come back to Hebrews 4, uh, verse 14. And we want to see in this uh, passage that we have in the verses 14 to 16, a little larger than our verse for today, it's a huge encouraging section that we have as believers a perfect high priest. He's praying for us, and he's defending us in heaven against Satan's allegations of our sins. That's a larger section of verses 14 to 16. And in this little section, we see that Jesus is our wonderful high priest who is two things. He is understanding and he is sympathizing. Understanding and sympathizing. His understanding of us factors into his praying for us. His sympathizing with us factors into his giving to us mercy and grace. Now, God willing, we'll come back to the section of four. 14 to 16 next Sunday, but today, as I've mentioned, I only want us to camp down upon verse 14, the single verse, verse 14 again, which reads, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You can see that that verse begins with a connecting word, since. It says, since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, etc. Good inductive Bible students understand that a connecting word like since has to link into something that came before it, something that preceded it in a near verse that came beforehand. And we see what that was, was the word of God. Remember the Bible. The verses that precede verse 14 are verses that make the points that God's word, the Bible, is living and active and sharp, and that the word of God pierces and even judges the person who reads it. Again, verses 12 and 13, which we've looked at previously. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And so unredeemed persons, we know from theology and scripture, unredeemed persons are all seen of God all the time. 
Those without Jesus Christ as Savior, their lives, their thoughts, their words, their deeds are under God as their judges' scrutiny, and these thoughts and these words and these deeds are all written, we're told, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. These things are all written into books of sinful deeds that are used and consulted by Jesus Christ, the judge of the great white throne judgment, again, Revelation 20, 11 to 15, as a basis upon which degrees of punishment are sentenced out by the just judge Jesus for the unredeemed of all the ages. Now, saying that God is omniscient with the unredeemed, sees them all the time, is not to say that God doesn't see the redeemed. God sees the redeemed, us, all the time as well. But the difference is, because of Jesus, because of his finished work, because of the grace of God, because of the promises of God that are salvific or having to do with salvation, because of those great things, although we who are redeemed also sin and God sees it, Christ has paid for those sins. Aren't you glad? He has paid in full for our sins, our past sins, our present time sins, and even our future sins because of great bloodshed, innocent bloodshed. Atonement was made for all of our sins. And so while God sees them, God knows all about them, they are pardoned, they are covered, they are forgiven, they are washed away. They're removed as far from the believer as far as the east is from the west. And Romans 8.1 tells us that there, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Never get over that, believer. Never get over that. And so Jesus, when the adversary Satan tr- comes to the throne of God in heaven and accuses of sin and allegations that she did this or he did that and so forth and so on, Jesus turns to the Father and says, yes, but for those sins I died. For that sin I died. And so verse 14, our verse for today, is an explosively wonderful assertion that we who are believers in Jesus Christ have a great high priest The lost without Jesus Christ do not have that great high priest yet. We who know Christ as Savior, we have a great high priest. And because we do, we can know such spiritual peace and relief and encouragement. 14, first part. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Will you notice two things with me quickly? First, of this Jesus, he has passed through the heavens. That is, Christ moved from heaven to earth the first Christmas. Jesus miraculously had a change of address from glory to earth that first Christmas and the incarnation. And just like Israel, as a nation's high priest that was human, passed through three areas of the tabernacle to get to minister in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, Jesus Christ passed through three layers of heavens to minister on earth. 2 Corinthians 12, 2, Paul's writing, 
I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Jesus Christ came through three heavens worth of a journey that first Christmas as the incarnate Son of God to live and to minister and to die and to rise again from the dead on earth, just like the human high priests of Israel had three areas of the tabernacle which they had to move through to get to minister in the area called the Holy of Holies. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians saying that he passed through three heavens going up, but the point of Hebrews 4.14 is that Jesus passed through three heavens coming down to earth. He's very God is the second point. Not only according to verse 14, Christ has passed through the heavens, but secondly, he is very God. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I've taught you before that in the Hebrew mindset, in the way that the Hebrew culture and mind looked at the little words son of, was that that meant just identical to. So if you called someone the son of Eliezer, you and the Jewish mindset were saying, he's just like Eliezer. And so when Jesus claimed to be the son of God in the gospel accounts, the Jewish leadership went berserk and called him a blasphemer because they understood in their Jewish thinking that when he said, I'm the son of God, he was claiming to be God. And of course, that wasn't any blasphemy. It was truth. Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, eternal, very God, took on human flesh the first Christmas to pitch his tent as it were, amongst us in our campsite to minister to persons and to explain the way of salvation, to raise the dead, to heal the sick, to promise a kingdom and promise a cross and a resurrection, and then to die on that cross and to be raised from the dead. And so verse 14, given the fact verse 14 is presenting Christ as our high priest who has both passed through the heavens, and is very God, that brings us to a very logical conclusion. Because Jesus Christ has become incarnate, moving from heaven to earth, we are to hold fast to our confession of faith as it pertains to Jesus Christ. And because the evidence is clear both in history and in revelation of Scripture, that Jesus Christ is very God. Equally, we are to hold fast to our confession of faith as it pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to hold fast to our confession of faith about who Christ is and about what Christ has done. We're to hold fast to what we say with our mouths and proclaim with our lips what we believe to be true based on Holy Scripture about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done. We have to hold fast. And we're urged to hold fast because the temptation is not to hold fast. But we're to hold fast to our confession what we say we believe about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done. Winston Churchill 
is uh, one of my favorites. He said so many things that really fit my Christian life and yours. He said, Churchill said, never give up on something you can't go a day without thinking about. Never give up on something that you can't go a day without thinking about. And surely for the Christian, that has to be the Lord Jesus Christ. We think about him so much more than once a day. Churchill also said, never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good and sense, never yield to force, never yield to apparently overwhelming might of the enemy, end of quote. And so Hebrews 4.14 is saying we have a high priest who's come from the heavens to the earth, and he's very God. So hold on to what you confess to be true about him. Don't waver. Don't turn your back on Christ. Don't water it down. Don't go silent. Hold on to your confession about the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, okay, Pastor Rob, you're making your point. I I understand. I'm to hold on to my confession of, of who Jesus Christ is. Okay. I don't think that's really a danger, Pastor Rob. I've known Christ for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, and I, I've been holding on to my confession about who Jesus Christ is. I don't think it's really a danger, frankly. You do realize that whereas maybe your perspective on the Lord Jesus Christ hasn't changed, praise God if it hasn't since you were converted, the world around you has changed dramatically. When this all comes back together, whenever that is, and you go back to school, you go back to the university, you go back to your neighborhood, you go back to the domino conversations under the shade tree, you go to transact business, people around you have shifted from where you took a confession of Jesus Christ, they're not there anymore. They've let go if they ever held to that confession in the first place. Some of them never confessed these things to be true about Jesus or his works ever. And so you may not have changed, and we thank God if you've not changed, but the people around you are pressuring you to change, to go weak on your confessions about Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. And the verse is very clear. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, Son of God, watch now. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our confession. That's saying, let us hold firm our confession. That's saying, let us hold tight our confession about who Jesus is and about what Jesus has done. I want to get practical. I want to get really practical. There are evangelical pastors that I know of, and maybe some of you know of these men as well, women, who have drifted from a true confession of who Jesus Christ is and a true confession of what Jesus Christ has done. They haven't held it firm. 
They haven't held that confession tight. They've drifted from their anchor. And because they have not held their convictions about Jesus Christ and confessions about Jesus Christ soundly, they are influencing the congregations that they are preaching to, in some cases through television, vast numbers of congregants by television. You see what I mean, Pastor Rob? Can you give me an example? I'm not going to name anybody. But those of you who are perceptive may have a sense. The falling away pastors I'm referring to are thinking and preaching that Jesus makes a good person better. These falling away pastors are thinking and preaching that not all of Jesus' miracles were actually miracles. They're thinking and preaching that Jesus prioritized the kingdom over the cross. These watering down pastors are thinking and preaching that Jesus was wrong about a literal hell. These watering down pastors are thinking and preaching that Jesus most wants self-esteem for those who would follow him. These watering down pastors are thinking and preaching that Jesus is not the only way to God. They've let go of any sound and orthodox confession they may have ever had about Jesus. Just let it go. They're adrift, no anchor, no rock. I go on. These giving in to bad doctrine pastors are thinking and preaching that Jesus was wrong in teaching that marriage is only to be between a man and a woman. These giving into bad doctrine pastors are thinking and preaching that Jesus may not necessarily be the only way to heaven. In some cases, we're being told that atheists get to heaven. In other words, everybody gets to heaven. These These who have fallen away from any true confession about the truths about Jesus that are timeless, that are unchanging, that are settled, that are intrinsic to who he is as God, man. These things are being thrown over the side of the boat in some churches and in some ministries. But God wants better for us. 14, since then we have a high priest, a great high priest rather, who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We hold fast to our confession because our high priest is our anchor. We hold fast to our confession because our anchor holds fast holds our boat fast to the truth of Christ and the plan of salvation and the Bible. Now, I said a moment ago I wanted to get practical, but I want to get hyper-practical. I was practical, but now I want to get 
hyper-practical. I want to walk you through some situations where you and I can be tempted not to hold fast to our confession of faith as it pertains to the Lord Jesus Christ. These are situations, and they're not far-fetched. You're at a funeral, and the clergy makes the point that the deceased is in heaven because he did more good than bad. The church was full. After the grave, are you going to go to that preacher and challenge him with that statement? And if you are, what Bible verse would you share with that preacher to quarrel against the statement, more good than bad gets you into heaven? Or you are in a situation and you're having coffee with a fellow mother of a toddler. And in the course of that conversation at Starbucks or McDonald's, wherever you might be, your friend says to you that she's totally against spanking because Jesus wants her child to have a high self-esteem. Do you disagree with that? If you do, will you say anything over coffee about it? And if you say anything over coffee about it, will you use a Bible verse to share with your friend? Or you're in the university and you're in a class with a particular professor who's clearly liberal in her worldview. In the course of the lectures, this professor has contended that Christ's love prevents him from condemning any two persons who love each other from getting married. The prof says two women, fine. Two men, fine. That's been the party line of this professor all semester. But then the stakes get ramped up higher because just before she dismisses the lectures to prepare for her final exam, she says, and of course, if you say anything against same-sex marriage, you will be docked heavily for grades. What do you do with that? As you're writing that final exam and that topic is on the final exam, do you just back away? Or do you have the courage of conviction to say that the scriptures that you build your life upon disagree with same-sex marriage. What scriptures would you use if you had the courage to object in the final exam? Or someone that you believe is a Christian, brother or sister, tells you that it really doesn't matter if Jesus did actual miracles. And they contend that we as a church read way too much into the Bible and that it's more fairy tale and myth and allegory and we shouldn't really take it so literally. And what does it really matter if, uh, if Jesus didn't in fact do anything supernatural, but people 
called it supernatural, but there was explanations. The wind blew so heavily, for instance, in the Old Testament that the Red Sea parted for the children of Israel because of a storm. That kind of thing. When you have a so-called Christian tell you that maybe there isn't very much miraculous in the Bible after all, would you protest that? And if you would, what Bible verse would you go to to make the protest? Or the situation of someone, again, who professes to be a Christian. And they say that they feel Calvary Bible Church pays way too much attention to sin. And that really, really wasn't what Jesus was all about. He was about happiness. Positive thinking. And then the person says, I've even seen some preachers on television who say that's exactly what Jesus was all about. He wasn't so much about sin as he was about happiness and fulfillment of your potential. Do you push back? Do you know a scripture verse that would help you to push back against that thinking? These are not far-fetched situations. Or consider you're in the situation where you're agnostic. That means a person who doubts that there is a God, not an atheist who says there is not a God. An agnostic is just going to say, I'm not sure there is a God, and I'm not sure there isn't a God. I'm on the fence. So you have an agnostic in your family. Most of your family confess Jesus as Savior and Lord by faith. But you have a family member who is a self proclaimed agnostic. And this member of your family wants to quiet down your witness for Jesus when you're together as a family. You don't have to read the Christmas story from Luke 2, do you? You want to pray over Easter dinner about a resurrection? Just, you know, just, this, this is the 21st century. Just, just calm down. Just, let's agree on what we can't agree on, that Let's not, let's not bring God into everything. I don't even know that he exists. This person, when they really want to put out their fangs in your family, argues that the cross, if it ever happened, was really a huge defeat for Jesus Christ. What, what do you do in that family gathering? Do you say something? And if you do, what Bible verse do you give to this short-sighted member of your family, this agnostic who thinks the cross was a huge defeat for Christ, if it even happened? And then my last situation for at least this sermon. You're listening to a phone-in radio show. And a very upset caller says on the radio that Jesus never claimed to be God. And all these Christians who say that Jesus claimed to be God, they don't have their facts right. Jesus never claimed to be God, the phone-in caller said on the radio. What do you do with that? Well, surely someone else will phone in and take him on on the radio. I don't have to. But nobody phones in. And what he's saying, just sitting out there for all the listeners to just have in their laps. Now, one Christian 
phones the radio station and says, I have biblical evidence that Jesus Christ claimed to be God many places. Could you be that person? Would you hold fast to your confession of Christ? It wouldn't be right for me to just leave you hanging with these situations, to give you these challenging situations and to ask you what scriptures you would use to rebut these situations. That would not be doing my work as a pastor of equipping you to do the work of the ministry. You all can defend the faith. I can defend the faith. We all all are supposed to defend the faith. I can hold true to my confession of Christ, and I seek to. You all can purpose to hold firm your confession of Christ, and I'm glad you're seeking to. But let me just quickly give you some verses you can jot down. And I'll just not rehash the scenarios. I don't have time. But in the situation where it's thought that more good than bad gets you to heaven, Titus 3, 5 to 7. The situation where the parent thought the child's self-esteem was paramount, Romans 7, verse 18. The situation of gay marriage, Romans 1, 18 to 32. The situation where miracles are questioned, Matthew 12, 22 to 24. The place of sin in a local church's ministry, Matthew 1, 21, and Romans 4, 25. The situation as to whether or not there's a hell, Luke 16, 19 to 31. The viewpoint that the cross was a huge defeat, huge defeat. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and verses 23 to 25 of 1 Corinthians 1. The situation that the claim that Christ never claimed to be God, John 8, 58 to 59, John 10, 27 to 31. Now, all of these responses are so imperative because, as you know, from 1 Peter 3, verse 15, we are commanded as believers, but sanctify, that is set apart, Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asked you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so, Hebrews 4.14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession. Lord, we would hold fast our confession of truth about you. Fortify us in the word of God. Humble us to ask other believers for help to defend the confession we have in Christ from Scripture if we need that help. Show us online how we can search for Bible verses to do by topics to find that help in that manner. Lord, we want to hold fast to our confession of you in this time of pandemic and especially in this time of pandemic. Amen.